You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you'll be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Prayers of a Desperate Man, based on Psalms 22, recorded on Sunday, September 4th, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. So the most important event in the history of the world was the, the, the cross of Christ, where Jesus died on a cross. And then he, three, three days later, he rose and he ascended into heaven and he'll return again. But the historical event of the cross is by far the most important event in the history of the world. There's never been a more famous man in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. No one. I have had the privilege of being to certain places in the world. I haven't been everywhere, but at least five or six extra countries. And I'll tell you, everyone knows the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most famous man who ever lived. Many of his words are remembered, but nothing is as, uh, let's say, prolific a symbol in all the world than the, as the cross. The cross is the number one symbol of mankind in the world. There are many symbols people look at. Some may like them better, but the cross is number one. It's on buildings. It's on jewelry. It's tattooed all over people's bodies. People understand that the cross is important, even if they don't understand what the cross means. The number one most important event in the history of the world was the crucifixion of a poverty, a man from a poverty um, social class among an obscure, oppressed people in the first century. Uh, the death of Christ. And so a really cool thing is we have in Matthew 27, this is not our text, but I want to read it to you, an eyewitness account of the moment before Jesus died. And I want to read it to you because it leads us into Psalm 22. So from Matthew 27, we hear these words. Now from the sixth hour, which would be noon, lunchtime, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So somehow between noon and three, I don't know if clouds covered the sun or what happened, but God made it dark. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. We don't want to get into too much detail on this right now, but that's because uh, Elijah is a unique man in the Bible. He's one of two men from the Old Testament who never physically died. There's Enoch, who God just kind of zapped up to heaven, and Elijah, who went with a little more flair. A chariot came down that looked like it was on fire, and in a way, he went up to the sky. And so the Jews uh, (coughs) are very fascinated with Elijah. In fact, there's a, a prophecy that says he has to return before Messiah, so Here he is, and they're thinking, wow, what's going on? It turned dark, and now he's calling out. Is he calling Elijah to come and rescue him? And so that's what they're referring to. In fact, in verse 41, it says in one of the, uh, 47, it says, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah, and one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, which would be not a good drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And Jesus yielded up his spirit. He gave up his life. No one could take it from him. He is the Lord of life. And uh, though men killed him, in a sense, he made it clear, no one can take my life from me. So he laid it down voluntarily. We know that afterwards he said uh, other words from other eyewitnesses, and he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, and that's the moment he died. Now, the reason I want to start here is because when he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting the 22nd Psalm. Now, 
question, did Jesus know he was quoting the second, 22nd Psalm? Absolutely. Jesus, first he's God, <laughs> but he's also man. As God, he wrote the Bible. But as man, he was a Jew of Jews, the perfect man who never sinned, and he knew his Bible. He knew exactly what he was doing when he quoted the 22nd Psalm. So he did it on purpose. Therefore, he diverts our attention to that Psalm when we think of him dying. He does that by quoting it. I mean, he picked very carefully the words he said. Jesus never spoke an idle word, and he spoke those words putting our eyes on the 22nd Psalm. So what is a 22nd Psalm? What was a song written by King David 1,000 years before the cross, 10 centuries, 1,000 years before Christ died? Jesus is quoting a very ancient word. So that's our psalm today. Let's look at Psalm 22 because I think it'll give us an understanding of one of the most important events in history, and that's the crucifixion. So, starting in 22, if you have your Bible, open it up on your favorite app or an actual paper version. Uh, We're going to look at verse 1, and uh, most, we'll look at a lot of the verses, not all of them. It is a very long psalm, but we'll start right at the top. Psalm 22, verse 1. If you're new to the Bible, it's somewhere near the middle. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This This begins a prayer of a very desperate man. This is a desperate prayer. This isn't a happy prayer. There are happy prayers. God, thank you. It's, you know, it's Christmas morning or something. I, I have a present. I'm getting married. I'm happy. We had a baby. Whatever your happy event. I got a job. Um, but this is not happy. This is the prayers of a desperate man. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. He's not saying God isn't listening in that sense. He's saying, what I'm asking you about, you're not relieving. Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. This is the prayers of a desperate man, but who's the man speaking? David wrote this text, so he is speaking, we have to assume, about himself. But this is a prophetic psalm, what we would call a messianic psalm. So, some sense, it's about Jesus. How do we make sense of that? Listen, when you read the Bible, what you're looking for is the meaning of the author who wrote it. What did the person who wrote the words mean when he wrote it? Why do we interpret it that way? Because it's how we interpret all human language. You know, it's, it's the way we interpret everything. If a parent tells a child, take out the trash. Your father told you that before he left for work. You've been here all day. You have not taken out the trash. He's going to come home. He's going to be angry. Frankly, I'm not real happy. Take out the trash. The child can say, what do those words mean to me? And then the other sibling can say, I know. Mother is saying, father's an angry man. He's a fearful man. And, and you should be afraid. Another sibling says, no, brother, wrong. He's saying, father is a, is a good man. 
And he wants to teach you the right way. Another say, no, you are both missing it. The messenger, mother, is saying she cares for you and she's trying to protect you and help you. Another one says, I think we need to explore the theological meaning behind the word trash. <laughs> right? And, and that's all silly, right? Because everyone knows what mom meant. Take out the trash, dum-dum. But people approach the Bible like that. One of the worst, one of the things I never want to hear, and I don't want to be a word police, sometimes people mean it in a good way, so I won't yell at you if you say it, but is when you read a passage of scripture and some, someone says, well, what does that mean to you? Or if someone says, this is what that, that verse means to me. And they say, well, I read the verse and this is what that verse means to me. You know what? I don't care what it means to you. And you shouldn't care what it means to me. All we should care about is what it means. And that's separate from you or me. In other words, you can read a Bible verse, think it means something, and be completely wrong. Because it means whatever it means. It doesn't mean what it means to me. So whenever we read the Bible, what we're looking for is the intent of the original author. Why? Because it's the way we read anything. Whether it's a menu or a novel or a newspaper. You guys don't know what newspapers are. A website. (laughs) You're looking for the intent of the original author. And now David is the original author. So when we read Psalm 22, we have to not over-spiritualize it. What's David talking about? And yet, I'm telling you... This is a messianic psalm, that it also is about Jesus on the cross, to which you can say, well, how can that be? Did David know he was talking about Jesus on the cross? There's no reason to think he did when he wrote. There are times in the Old Testament where you have people who are saying, I know I'm speaking of a future prophetic event. And we normally call those people prophets. And um, they normally know it. Thus says the Lord, this is going to happen. But in this case, there's no indication David is talking about anyone but himself. And yet you will see that the Messiah is all over this and Jesus himself points to it. So how can that be? Well, the answer is every verse in the Bible has two authors. One is human and one is divine. So we're always looking for what the human author had to say, but at times the Bible will point to it and say, wait a minute, God meant that and something else. And that's what we have with Psalm 22. So as you read Psalm 22, you're going to be looking for the point of view of two people, David and Jesus. And I think you'll see that. So let's go through the main high points here and, uh, and look at it ourselves. Now, David is a faithful man, and he's loved by God. God says he's a man after my own heart. He's a very important figure in the Bible. But yet, Look at his prayer. At this moment, he's desperate. He says, my God, my God, why have you turned your back? I am calling out. You're not helping. I don't know exactly what he's praying about, but it was a rough time in his life. You ever feel desperate? You ever feel, hopefully it's not every day. If so, we all need to love you and hug you more. But you can have whole seasons where you feel desperate. And you may even think, has God abandoned me? Is there something wrong with my faith? Not necessarily. David is a faithful man, loved by God. And God put him in that situation. And he he prays. And he teaches us. He sings. 
How would you like to sing songs of desperation? Most of the time when we gather together, we sing songs that are glorious or of joy or of the greatness of God. But there would be nothing wrong with coming in and singing desperate songs as an act of worship because that's what he's doing. But notice, he doesn't panic. In, in, one to th- in verse 1 to 3, he's like, God, where you been? Or 1 to 2. But in 3, 4, and 5, he remembers who God is. He says, but I know you're holy. And he remembers in you our fathers trusted. He's remembering faithful ancestors in Israel and saying, God, you are good. He remembers who God is. And that's a good lesson to us. In our times when we feel abandoned, even by God, and that he's not helping us, we should remember the faithfulness of God in the past. Now, from Jesus' point of view, Jesus said these very words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that. What is he talking about? Did Jesus not know the cross was coming? Listen, before Jesus died, no one knew the cross was coming. It was a plan thrown together at the end by some people who didn't like him, was the help of some government officials. The apostles didn't know, the Romans didn't know, the Jewish priests didn't know, only Jesus knew. So he knew it was coming. And he knew he was going to be abandoned in the sense that God was going to allow him to die and not save him from that moment. Do you remember he even prayed, Father, if there's any way to save me from this moment, please do so, but not my will, but thy will be done. And he knew he was going to be stuck there on that cross. This creates all kinds of theological problems for us, which, believe it or not, the Bible solves for us. The first one is death is unknown to God. Death is antithetical to God. God, by definition, cannot die. God can't die. Because if God... Death, death, we take it as something that you can live with, if you'll pardon that that phrase. But it is the opposite of God's godness. God is alive. Death is not not only anathema, it, it would be the ultimate humiliation. Obviously, it's impossible... There's no one who could be more, have more horror at the thought of dying than God. Because he actually understands what death is. We do not understand what death is. We play with life and death. If we could understand even a bit of what God sees death as, the word abortion, we wouldn't even allow it. Humans would turn to each other and say, never even say that word. Because you don't know what you're even playing with when you talk about death. Dealing it out when you don't have to. And God can't die. If he, see, if he ceases to exist, what happens to the universe? But it, it's against the definition of God. So, and yet we say Jesus is God. You, you, you want to find the place where most Christians are heretics, it's right here. It, and it includes you. <laughs> Till now, I'm going to unheretic you. If someone... If someone says, did your God die for you? And you say, yes, you're a heretic. Because God can't die. That's a heresy. I'm not saying you're not saved, but that's impossible. So how did, how is it that, that, that Jesus knew he was going to be abandoned to die? Here, here's how. Jesus is the only person in the universe who has two natures. One is divine and one is human. 
You see, he's always existed. He is eternal. You might say, well, I'm eternal. The Bible says if I believe in Jesus, I will have eternal life. And I believe in Jesus, so I'm eternal. You are, but only in one direction. In other words, if you were a a timeline in math, you start with a dot. That's where you start, where you were conceived. That's your beginning. And then there's an arrow coming out going one direction. And you're eternal that way, but what about that way? You're not. But Jesus always was. Before Abraham was, he said, I am I can only talk about myself in the present tense because I'm God, he was saying. He always was, but he was always God. Some will say, well, Jesus, God changed into a man, another heresy. He did not change into a man. If God changes into a man, he ceases to be God. God can't cease to be God. So what did he do? Philippians 2 undoes this for us when it says, Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a man. He added manhood to who he was. So the incarnation, that's when God becomes man, doesn't change into one, it allows him to experience what it's like to be us. To suffer like we suffer and to experience death and death in our place as a substitute for us and that's why he came to die. So let's fill in a blank here. When Jesus came, cried out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew why. People often speculate on this going, I wonder what he meant. Uh, did he think God had left him? No. He's not dumb. He knows Psalm 22 and he knew he was going to die and he knows why. He knew why. He spoke these words to fulfill the scripture so that you and I would understand that Jesus truly tasted death. It's important that you understand that Jesus died. He didn't just go up on the cross and, and many doubt that Jesus died. There there are all kinds of theories that try to rescue him from death. There is the theory that, that, um, there's an Islamic theory that's interesting, and that is that Jesus, um, Simon of Cyrene, you remember him, he came to help Jesus carry the cross. At that moment, God changed Simon until he looked like Jesus, and Jesus walked away, and then Simon was crucified, which... That's the ultimate stinks to be you story. I mean, you're there to try to do a good deed. Next thing you know, what the heck? Others say, no, it was Judas. God did the same trick, but with Judas. No, Jesus died. You're misreading the Bible if you think he didn't die. Let's go back to Psalm 22. Let's read some more. So here's David describing himself in in the strangest of ways. But I am a worm and not a man. He felt like a worm. He felt, I don't know, whatever a worm feels like. He's scorned. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And by the way, when we get to verse 8, you're going to see a quote that will happen 10 centuries later when Jesus hangs on the cross. This is, eyewitnesses said, what the priests would say of Jesus. And it's quoted 10 centuries in advance. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. They said that of Jesus. He says he trusts God, let God get him down from the cross. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You're not so tough, you're not so holy, look at you. 
walking on water and all that business. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from my womb. You see, David felt like a man without a single friend. Note that even in verse 9, 10, and 11, he does the same kind of thing he did before. He's desperate. He's describing his desperation to the Father, but still, he, he remembers God. You're the one who took me from the womb. You made me. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. As, as, as on you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And here we know that David is speaking of himself in some sense, some poetic sense. But you can't help but wonder if the Holy Spirit is putting this in so we will think of Jesus who from the womb was always God. But I'm speculating there. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. So David felt like a man without a single friend. And he turns to the God who owns him. He's saying, nobody likes me. I'm a worm. People step on me. They don't look at me. I can't find a human that's on my side. I am friendless. If I do find someone, they make fun of me. You you know, you, you got friends until you do something wrong. Then everyone's like, well, let's see what happens to him now. I'm not jumping in. He's all alone. But he turns to God. You ever felt like that? Hopefully that's not your daily diet. But have you ever felt like you had no one to lean on? I don't have a friend in the world. Like, you know, theoretically you have friends, but in this particular situation, I feel very much alone. Last week, I was particularly affected to read the story of someone named Kayla Mueller, and if you haven't heard of her, you will, probably, because ABC News has picked up this story, and they like stories like this. Um, Maybe it's exploitative. Maybe that's cynical of me. I don't know. But I'm actually, it's good to hear it. This young Christian woman was captured by ISIS. I don't know how many of you heard of this. Beaten, tortured, raped, and eventually killed um, along the way. You know, she was in Syria for uh, some humanitarian reasons. She was helping people in the name of her faith. So she was captured. And their fellow captives who got away, who would tell of this 20-something-year-old young woman who encouraged them though she seemed to be taking as much beatings, as much rapings, as much torture or more than others who helped them escape. And when they escaped, she would s- slip them notes or, or the, from, the, from her captors saying, we have this woman, we want to free her, but you're going to have to give us some money. And those notes, according to the story, I can't verify it, Doctors Without Borders wouldn't pass them on. President Obama and the FBI said, now's not the time to negotiate for you. We're negotiating for other people now to get them free. And I'm not saying that to indict those people. Perhaps in that situation, they thought they were doing what was best. But what I am saying is from her point of view, she had to feel like she didn't have a friend in the world. But she had a friend. She had God. According to the captives who left, she remained encouraging to them, even as they left her behind, leaving one of them to say, I will not feel like I'm truly free until she's free. And she was killed, so she is free. There was no man to help her, but she had her God. And let me assure you, 
Precious in his sight is the death of his holy ones. God didn't ignore her, and he's not ashamed to call her friend if she claimed him. And I don't know her. I'm assuming she did. In that case, she is in joy now, and she's awaiting the time when Jesus comes and ends the evil of mankind and rules. Now, Jesus was on that cross, and Psalm 22 works for him here. He knew he was going to be abandoned by man. He knew it. He expected it. He quoted another text. They're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. He knew it. When he pointed us to Psalm 22, that he would be abandoned. He knew his closest men would abandon him. That's what the foot washing is all about. Go back and look at John chapter 13. When he washed his apostles' feet, he was telling them, I'm going to die. They're not paying attention. And all of you are going to ditch me. They said, look, if someone comes to get you, we're fighting with you. We're dying with you. Peter said, listen, I love you so much. All these other men can abandon you. I will die for you. Jesus knew they wouldn't. So even though he was going to die for their sins and make them holy, he wanted to show them. Even the betrayal you're about, the way you're going to abandon me, I've covered that too. And he washed their feet. And then they went out and ditched them. In his time of greatest suffering, he was alone. I think dying alone has got to be the worst thing that can happen to you emotionally when you're dying. Not the worst thing happened to you emotionally, but if you're dying, probably the worst part of it is if you don't have anyone there to hold your hand. And sometimes that happens. God is there. He was abandoned. He had to do what he had to do all by himself. One time he was telling his closest men that he was going to die and they weren't catching it. And he said it like this, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He came to be alone. He came to be rejected. He knew that this was necessary in the plan of God, that this is for this purpose I came. And as a side note, it's not really the point of this message, but perhaps you need to hear this. God has plans for you too, and sometimes... Could not it be that the purpose of God in your life requires you to feel completely abandoned? And you don't know why that's a good plan, but it is. In any case, Jesus was abandoned, and he was surrounded by those who hated him, and God let him die. He he had friends, but they left him. But he did not leave him alone. When Jesus was on that cross, yes, he was going to die in his humanity, but in his divine nature, he would not die. There are people who we really can get big on imagining God turning his back on the sun and not seeing him and and him feeling. But listen, you're reading too much in. He abandoned his body to the grave, yes. But his last words were, into your hand I commit my spirit. The Father never left him. Never left him. You know, some some of them, no, he had to leave them because that's why he said that. You're misreading this. Like the guy, the thief on the cross next to him, he said, this day you will be with me in paradise because he knew he was not leaving God. He was just, his body had to die. He didn't say, "Uh, okay, you're going to go to paradise and I'll catch up with you there Sunday. I got a couple days, I'm going to be dead. 
So physically he died. Spiritually, his God never forgot them. And let that be a comfort. Your God never leaves you. Um, if we go on in our text, jump, jump down to verse 16, there's some remarkable details of the death of Messiah that are revealed in this psalm that there's no way David could have known this. We know the Holy Spirit put this here. Look at verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That was written 10 centuries before the cross. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And, and the Ro- that would, eyewitnesses would say, the Romans would take his shirt and say, this has got to be worth something on eBay. It's the Messiah's shirt. <laughs> well, don't rip it. It's, it's all one piece. I'll, let's throw some dice, see who wins it. Ten centuries ahead of time. Oh, there's been naysayers. I read, if you were to get a modern translation of English translation of the Hebrew Bible from certain Jews, they will change these verses to, they mauled my hands and feet, which I'm like, okay, that doesn't even make sense. But all right, who mauls hands and feet? Who beats up hands and feet? I'm going to beat up your hands. Okay, okay. Pathios.com, which is probably the worst website in the world because it claims to be Christian but it tears down everything biblical I just want to give you that in case you run into it and wonder I saw an article saying well no this is about a lion pinning him down so the lion pins him down and holds his hands and feet it's like a UFC lion but still the focus on the hands and feet (laughs) Hands and feet. That doesn't help you? How about the part about casting lots for his clothing? You know, God is trying to, he is confirming his word. The most important event in the history of the world was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And 1,000 years before it happened, so that we would know, God made sure in his book, His people would have evidence. And that's not the only evidence, but it seems like Jesus on the cross wanted us to remember Psalm 22 because he quoted the first line. Isn't that amazing? And at this point in the message, we have to ask why. Not why did he prophesy it, but why did Jesus die? If God, if he is the son of God, if he is God in the flesh, God in the flesh, forever why would God become man to die why would God send his son to die it does not seem like the path to victory when the NFL season young in the fall and the Steelers send out Ben Roethlisberger and on the first play the coach runs out with a metal pole and just starts slamming him in the knees and he lays in pain and he ends his career someone says to the coach why'd you do that this is best for the team I don't think that is. (laughs) A lot of people trip over the fact that Jesus died on a cross. How? It doesn't make sense. The winner doesn't die on a cross. God doesn't become the lowest. The Bible explains the idea in many places, but let me give you one sentence that sums it up. Ready? This is from 2 Corinthians. It says this. 
for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Right, that phrase, interesting, made him to be sin. He's a man. This is figurative language. He remained a man, he remained God, but he made, what that means is he knew no sin. He never sinned. He's the only perfect man. Every other human being in the world has sinned. You, me, your mom, your dear old mom. Mother Teresa, she's about to be canonized, which does not mean they're going to shoot her with a cannon. And she was a fine woman who did many good deeds and seemed to have faith in Christ. But she sinned. All human beings sin except Jesus. Which means all human beings are under the rightful rejection, punishment, anger of God. Because they are unjust before the only just judge. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that on that cross, all the sins of the world could die. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. So though I have sinned my whole life long, as have you, I become righteous like God is righteous. What a revelation. I have moments, I'm, I'm certain I couldn't get one of my parents to testify that I am as righteous as God is righteous. There are teachers who would, I have friends who wouldn't, I, it, it's hard to find a human who would say, Mike, he's as righteous as God, but guess what? The, the death of Christ on the cross declares it. And, and that causes us to scratch our heads, but that is the great exchange. Someone once said it this way, God treated his son like a criminal by killing him on a cross so he could treat criminals as his son. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the great news of the Bible. God has mercy on sinners. This undoes every religion in the world, including many forms of Christian religion. Because normally we think, I'm going to please God by doing good things. He's going to see my goodness and reward me forever in heaven. Well, that's a lie. Because you're not good. You've sinned. You're like Willy Wonka. You drank the fizzy stuff. That doesn't work for you. Just let that one slide. You thought you were better than the girl who turned into a blueberry, but you're not. Some of you are like, what's he talking about? Others are going, hey, wow. (laughs) We're saved by a free gift. That's the good news. That's the good news. Forgiveness comes from no other source except God himself. And God made the way by sending his own son to die. There is no other way to get rid of your sins. I was in India and I talked to many people and I talk to Muslims, I talk to Hindus, and it's amazing how many of them all say the same thing as a secular American. No kidding. When you bring up Jesus, they all say, well, all the ways lead to God. Well, I pointed out that no one has seen God at any time except the only begotten Son who was in His bosom, and He has revealed Him. In other words, 
You're not going to get forgiveness by praying the rosary or the Hail Marys over and over and over. I don't care how many times you do it. And you're not going to get forgiveness by reciting Krishna, Krishna, Krishna over and over. You're not going to get forgiveness because you pray five times a day pointing to the east. You're not going to get forgiveness because you help people who are hurting and you love children and you feed the poor and you protect the the oppressed. You're not going to get forgiveness through any of those things because God has provided a way by giving the best and most valuable thing to those of us who the least valuable he sent his son to die in our place he who knew no sin became sin so that i and you may become the righteousness of god that's the great exchange the bible says it plainly in romans 4 5 6 7 and 8 where it says and to the one who does not work and here it does not mean for money right it doesn't mean there's guys saying to their wives when they hear this well see i told you i can sit on the couch and it's okay with god i was like no he's not talking about that He's talking about the one who does not work to make his soul clean. But believes or trusts in him who justifies who? The ungodly. Jesus makes righteous ungodly people. That's the whole amazing thing about the Bible. Even Christians try to fix that. They're like, well, it doesn't really say that. We got to be good too. We got to go to Sunday school too. Got to memorize verses too. Got to pray these prayers too. You got to give to the church too. You got to do this too. No, that's all a bunch of lies. God only justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. It's a great exchange. Jesus lived holy. I lived like a sinner. Jesus died for me. I believe in him and I get his righteousness. That's the good news. The Bible is good news for bad people. If you don't think you're bad people, the Bible's not for you. And you can go to hell. And that wasn't meant as an insult. That's the eternal reality if you won't come off your high horse thinking you're oh so good. But David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. When he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count as sin. David was not saying, blessed is the one who always does the right thing. He's saying, no, you're really blessed if God forgives your sin. Jesus suffered and died abandoned by men by the purpose and plan of God in order to accomplish the great plan of God, and that is to save your soul and mine. That's why he suffered, and that's good news. And the resurrection is foreshadowed in Psalm 22. Skipping to verse 22, he says, I I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Here we have this desperate man, and we know with Christ he died, but can he offer anything? Yes, because on the third day, he rose again. On the third day, he rose again, and he met with his father followers over 500 of them told them of the glories of the word of God and of what he did he ascended to heaven where he gives gifts to men he gives the Holy Spirit he gives eternal life and he's coming again and he gives satisfaction to all the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied Jesus has come to me all who are thirsty and I will satisfy you take eat this is my body which is for you all who eat of this will not hunger eternal life is from Jesus 
because forgiveness of sins is from Jesus. Satisfaction is from Jesus. Pleasures forevermore from Jesus. So now I have, have to ask a question, do you have Jesus? Because if you don't, you don't get those. Do you want eternal life? Trust in what he did on that cross. Believe in him. And the story doesn't end with you and me. The very end of the, 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 the psalm goes like this. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. What does that remind us of? Listen, this is a Jewish man writing a Jewish song for Jewish people to sing in Jewish worship. But God's plan was always bigger than Israel. He wants the whole world because he's made the whole world. He uses the Jews as a vehicle to bring salvation. They're not his only people. All who believe in Christ are his people. All the families in the nation shall worship before you. For the kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Everyone who goes down to the dust shall worship him. Last week, I took the ashes of my grandmother and my mother and spread them on a hill somewhere in Southern California. Actually, my older brother did it. My aunt did it. But I said a prayer while they did it. And we all stood there. And there are their ashes on the ground. And I think such holy thoughts in those moments as, you know when it rains, and it does rain in California sometime, all these ashes are going to wash down on the porch, like way down the hill. And Someone's going to sweep my mother up. That's what I thought. <laughs> well, they'll just blow away before that. I don't know where they're going to go. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. He's going to raise every human being, and every human being is going to call him Lord. If you know him before you become dust, it will be a time of joy. But there's something, well, I ain't never going to say that. Yes, you will. Even those on their way to damnation will acknowledge his lordship. Because he's the God of souls. Verse 30 gives the forever look. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Listen, Jesus is not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of the whole earth. People from every tribe and language and people and nation will join his congregation. Some very quick applications because it shouldn't take long. Not because I'm in a hurry. One day he will return. And he will rule the world and all false religion, which is all religion, will be cast down. And Jesus will reveal himself as God even to those who do not believe in him. There is only one God. He exists forever in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has revealed him to us. And church, a healthy church, must always realize that we are part of a worldwide endeavor. That means two things. One, there's always a global application. It is always the voice of Satan that Christians hear in their ear when they hear, why do we got to be concerned about people other places? What, we got hurting people right here. That's always the voice of Satan. When you hear it, tell it to go away. God's concern was always to reach us, reach the Jews, from the Jews reach the world. And we all have a part to play in that. He is a global Lord and there's a global application but because of we're of the part of a worldwide endeavor, there's also a local application. In other words, the implication is very local. And, 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 and to make it as plain as possible, 
Hospitality is required of you to every human you meet. Because God wants every human you meet to believe in his son and be forgiven of sins. And you are the conduit. And that means love, hospitality, friendliness. And that means every human you meet. Every kind, young or old. People in wheelchairs, people not in wheelchairs. Rich, poor. If you're black, it means white people. If you're white, it means black people. If you're Asian, I guess it means all the people. And the people to the Asians. It means, it means you should not be so obsessed with your political radio that you walk around hating everybody and you see a bumper sticker you don't like. You want to drive up next to them and give them the finger. Have you forgotten that you are part of a global kingdom? That person needs your hospitality. Everybody needs your hospitality. Everybody. Christ died for you when you were a sinner and he wants you to bring that. Final application is we must never fear when the kingdoms of man crumble. And they're crumbling. I'll tell you, we live in a strange age. Kings rise, kings fall. Nations rise, nations fall. Right in front of our eyes. People are, the whole world's scared. It's not just America scared about their future, which you should be. Things are weird out there. <laughs> and I got good news for you. In November, we're going to trust the future of our nation with, just forget that one. You can either have a dishonest crook or a dishonest crook. Who do I want? Well, I want the one with the R because I'm an R. Oh, good for you. Try to wash that off one day. Well, I want the one with the D. Oh, my word. But we shouldn't be afraid. The whole world is afraid. They are. They're all wondering what's going to happen. Who's going to nuke who? Who's going to invade who? We are part of a very big story. Our king is the king of kings. All nations are going to crumble. You may be just, instead of trying to, to worry that you'll lose yours, realize that if you live in the end times, this might be what it looks like. Like you, you're whistling and no one's dancing. You're screaming out, here's the truth, and nobody listens because they're not spiritually attuned like you are. There are people who want to manipulate you into thinking, vote for us, and we'll do because we do like you. They don't like you. They don't care about you. Look how they live their lives. You're just being a sucker again. But you have a king. You have a king who will never abandon you. And you're here to shine his light. And that's because by loving every human you see, even the ones who don't love you. And of course, if you don't know Christ as Savior, What are you waiting for? He's inviting you. Come, come. All who come to me, I will not cast out. Come to know Christ. Run to him and he will save you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.